this special edition of the Parlamerica's podcast, the Honorable Valerie Woods, Speaker of the House of Representatives of Police, interviews Ms. Isua Iahen, Program Specialist for Economic Empowerment and Statistics at the UN Women Multi-Country Office for the Caribbean. Their conversation was recorded as a keynote presentation for the 13th gathering of the Parlamerica's Parliamentary Network for Gender Equality, titled Bolstering Social Protection Beyond COVID-19, What the Data Tells Us. The gathering is being held as a series of virtual events in September and October 2021 and is hosted by the National Assembly of Belize and the Chamber of Senators of Bolivia. The dialogue between the Honorable Woods and Ms. Iahen centers on the ways in which strengthening social supports and services can contribute to addressing the root causes of gender equality and other forms of social vulnerability in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. The Honorable Woods asks Ms. Iahen about good practices and approaches to social protection for the Caribbean region and why it is necessary to invest and build partnerships to advance in these areas. Well, first, uh, let me let me um, start off with the obvious question on the definition of social protection. As an umbrella term, it refers to many different types of programs and benefits, but what would you say is the most useful way for us to think about social protection as a whole? Okay, so have you, as you um, correctly noted, Madam Speaker, um, social protection protection refers to a wide range of interventions and specifically to programs and policies that prevent and protect people from vulnerability and exclusion. So that is a useful way to think about social protection as something that could, or a system that could prevent and protect people from poverty, from vulnerability, and from exclusion. Another key defining characteristic of social uh, protection, at least the way in or the approach um, that the UN uses in terms of its work on social protection is universality. And that is that everyone um, should have access to social protection throughout their life cycle. So that is a very core element of social um, protection in terms of the life cycle nature of of it. And so that's another useful way of thinking about um, uh, social protection. And then um, finally, I think there's also a, a, um, a lot of misunderstanding about um, or conflation between social protection and and social assistance and what we know as welfare and income support. Mm-hmm. But social protection is much more than that because of the life cycle nature of um, social protection. Um, it includes comprehensive access to universal health. It includes access to benefits such as parental leave, unemployment benefits, income support for children, for adults, for people who are active in, in the labor force and those, those who aren't. So it's really um, thinking about it in a, in a, a, as a, a life cycle support mechanism from the beginning of life to the end of life. A very, a very inclusive um, exactly. approach as well. I'm glad you yes. stated that because indeed a lot of people do restrict it just to the welfare component exactly. and, doesn't, and, and they don't go beyond that. Well, yes. why, why would you say issues of social protection and gender in, in inequalities or uh, gender equalities are, are so intertwined? Why is there an interconnection there? 
I think, um, well, unfortunately, um, there are entrenched gender inequalities and norms um, in all our societies all over the world. And these drive differences in women's and men's lives and their well-being. Um, so, for example, in the Caribbean, women are more highly educated than men in many of our countries. But despite this, we still see a gender gap in wages. We still see women's unemployment rates in all our countries in CARICOM being stubbornly higher than men's, despite the fact that they are more um, highly educated. And so um, this means that education enough, uh, education alone, sorry, is not enough to overcome these gender um, barriers to income um, security. So that means we are, we are then um, forced to look at other issues that may be blocking um, gender equality uh, gender equity in, um, and access to social protection. And so um, that is why I think social protection and gender equality are so intertwined, given that, you know, you may provide education supports, you may provide training support. What is it that, that, that prevents women from reaching at equal levels to men um, employment? What is it that prevents women, and despite in many of our countries, although not all, being more highly educated, being paid less um, than men? I think it, it has to do with the sectors in which women tend to work, which attract um, lower wages. Uh, so the services mm -hmm. sector and, and, and men tend to work more in sectors that also the services sector, but more they predominate in sectors where um, they are more um, um, tools and mechanization and, and you know, um, sectors that tend to, to, to garner higher wages. So this means that equal pay for equal work alone will not work. Mm -hmm in addressing these, these um, barriers because the sectors that women tend to predominate in and work in are different from the sectors that men tend to predominate and work in. So really what we are talking about is equal pay for equal work of equal value that we should not pay a domestic worker less than a construction worker, for example. Um, so um, what is, how does this relate to social protection? Um, as I said earlier, the interventions then that would need to be introduced to address what may be gender bias or undervaluing of women's work are very much um, embedded in, in, in a comprehensive um, social protection mm -hmm. system. So at, at, um, at different stages of women's lives, like marriage, um, we see that um, or childbirth, the, the, the research that UN Women has done in the region has shown that um, when there is a child present in the house, uh, poverty rates tend to be higher, unemployment rates tend to be higher, unpaid care work tends to be higher. So that means that in our social protection interventions, we need to address access to affordable and accessible childcare. And this is not only for women, also for men as well, and for our families, um, so that there is a wider um, you know, um, opportunity to make choices in terms of re-entering the labor force and not seeing it as a disadvantage. For example, um, for a woman who has come off of maternity leave and she feels that she's somehow behind when she re-enters the, 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 the labor market and is not able to you know, um, increase her, her opportunities or up, uh, to increase her, her salary or her income or get a promotion. So there are all of these interventions that um, can be introduced uh, in the design of social protection uh, programs to close these um, gender gaps. And then finally, I think 
that um, when we think about the end of life, because women's unemployment tends to be higher than um, men's, they also contribute at lower rates to pensions. Mm -hmm. So we see um, pension amounts being lower for women when they, when they uh, retire, or if they never worked, they don't have any access to a pension. So that's, that's where we see the interlinkages and kind of the centrality of gender to the design of social protection programs. They must be designed to close gender gaps if they are truly mm -hmm. to be universal and, and um, comprehensive. And, and uh, I so appreciate how you um, included the aspect of equity and value, because again, oftentimes, we end, we end the story or the argument at um, equality, yes. but it's, there's also the equity component and the value yes. of, of, that, of that work. Um, women now turning to the reality that we're all facing and grappling with the pandemic. Um, it has hit our region particularly hard. And um, in that um, impact, it cannot be ignored the, the tourism, which a lot of the Caribbean relies on, has been particularly um, uh, affected. Now, women do make up a majority of that workforce. Uh, and so my, my question to you is, what, what good practices exist for building better resilience as well as improved job security for, for these workers in the in the tourism and, and, and service sectors? Okay, um, I think for countries without universal social protection systems, which admittedly is very expensive to establish, <laughs> especially for many mm -hmm. of our small island developing states in the Caribbean, um, there have been some emerging good practices post the pandemic, including in CARICOM. Well, I shouldn't say post the pandemic because we are still in the pandemic but very true i make the same of the pandemic um that have included for example cash transfers to workers laid off in the tourism sector um small business income support in 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 the tourism and services sector and in some of our countries child care services being um, extended to nurses to um, other essential workers um, medical professionals um, and others in the service sector so that they are able to continue to continue working and to protect us <laughs> um, in the pandemic. Um, I think Trinidad um, also introduced a paid pandemic leave. So these are some good practices that, um, that countries have introduced after the pandemic. But the only um, concern I have is that this has been introduced only after the pandemic. And your question was really about resilience and job security in the long term and sustainability. So to go to step to go a step further and to really address resilience to shocks, whether it be to health shocks like COVID economic shocks, um, shocks uh, as, a as a result of disaster risk, uh, um, disasters or climate change, uh, we, we really need to consider transitioning towards a universal system, as expensive as it is, as uh, um, we, we have to consider that because when we, we look at uh, the pathway to resilience, it means that we have to protect our entire population from social vulnerability and exclusion. And the fastest way to do this would be to include access for everyone for women, for men, for children, 
Um, and, and so therefore a, a universal um, system will be the best way to protect uh, popu uh, populations from um, poverty and exclusion. But what I think is also needed, um, especially in our, in our um, SIDS economies um, and in CARICOM economies, is we need to retool our economies to insulate our people as much uh, as much as possible from these shocks. So retraining and reskilling our, our population and making them ready for the digital economy, for the blue and green um, economy, I think is also very critical and um, in fact necessary for the region's economic survival. Um, we can't delink our economies from um, environmental sustainability concerns and climate change and all of these intersect with um, gender um, um, equality as well, uh, because our tourism sector, for example, depends very much on a healthy environment and climate change. And tourism is a sector in which um, women um, tend to, to, to work at much higher rates than in other sectors. So we then see the very clear linkages between um, women's livelihoods, their income security, climate change and sustainability, and of course, providing social protection as a way to ensure that they're insulated and protected from the impacts of, of shocks. And of course, this is, we are talking about a pathway to resilience um, and to universality, even though at the moment we may not, our countries may not be able to afford a fully universal system, but we can at least start um, to consider it as a pathway towards, towards that. All right, and the discussion has to be um, beyond that of the pandemic. Uh, it exactly. certainly has highlighted a lot of the vulnera vulnerabilities and the weaknesses in our systems. Yes. And so while it's been, um, we do have, as I'm listening to you, we do have those uh, temporary measures, for the lack of a better term, that's been put in place. But as you rightly point out, what happens beyond that um, when hopefully we're getting to the post-pandemic um, period, we need to continue it. As a legislator, I am well attuned to the trade-offs that are necessary um, in terms of allocating public resources. It's very difficult. I can appreciate that for any member of parliament and for legislators across the countries, um, all our countries, where we're facing mounting debt. Um, and then this unprecedented uh, pandemic and the economic crisis that it brings only deepens that challenge and that difficulty. How does UN Women make the case, or what is the case that you're making to increase investments in social protection, but within that very real context of the of the economic debt that the countries face? And as you pointed out earlier, the consideration of the climate change impacts that only increases um, some of that debt? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the starting point would be for policymakers to consider the cost of inaction. And we are living with some of those costs now. We are living with um, the, the, the uh, challenges um, um, of crime, of insecurity, of poverty, and reducing investment in social protection will translate, as we know very well, into, into all of these, um, um, you know, higher poverty rates, higher crime insecurity, environmental degradation, potentially overall 
political instability of our states. And so I think that um, we have to then consider looking beyond GDP as the sole measure of progress. And, and in no way am I suggesting that macroeconomic stability imperatives can't be balanced with social protection. We have to reduce our public debt. We have to look at those indicators of macroeconomic um, stability. But I think the case I'm trying to make is, in addition to that, we need to look beyond GDP and um, and a purely kind of um, you know um, balancing the books approach to 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 this situation. Um, and I think it's possible to set out, as I as I said earlier, an incremental. A pathway towards um, a universal system. And it may be that at the moment, because of the challenges with fiscal space, we start with a targeted approach where we, we target the most vulnerable and excluded populations with a view to closing gender gaps, with a view to reaching universality. So for example, in, in your country, Madam Speaker, there's a boost program. Um, and if, if I'm just going to give an example, perhaps this already exists, but for example, um, beneficiaries of the, of the boost program could be given priority access to child care services, to job and skills training, to, to healthcare, they can be placed at the front of the line because the benefit boosts are the most vulnerable and excluded. And so there can be set up, there can be programs set up to, for example, support single parents, um, to support people who are unemployed. Um, so this, this targeted approach obviously will cost less than a universal approach, but at least will be a first step and a series of incremental steps towards insecurity and then would also not compromise um, the con our, uh, you know, uh, public debt standing, if you will. I think there would, there would, in some cases it might, uh, but again, it's a choice that has to be made when we look at, um, or when we consider the cost of inaction as well. I, I think you segued into my, the other question I actually had regarding um, how, as we, as we're all trying to understand the, the new normal, um, if you will, uh, the, is it that post-pandemic, if I can um, use that term, is it that we're going to return to a social protection business as usual approach? Or if, I'm, if I hear you correctly, is it that we really need to be thinking of a paradigm shift in how we, we think and perceive um, indicators or growth um, within countries, it can it can no longer just be at uh, the pure accounting approach or economic approach of GDP, and that is that is where we're all graded. Having said that, um, what type of partnerships or alliances do you consider helpful to prevent us going back to business as usual in terms of social protection schemes and mechanisms? Uh, I think it's critical for to have a, a platform for dialogue uh, with between government, which is government is the uh, primary agent of accountability. Um, we as citizens in, vote to install governments to protect us to have to be the primary agents of accountability for our rights. But I think what the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us and it's, um, I don't think it's going to be the last crisis that we will experience. Mm -hmm. um, 
is that we need to have a continuous, a platform for continuous dialogue and exchange with the private sector, with unions, with civil society, with um, uh, organizations, to really have an inclusive approach to decision-making around, um, as you said, or inferred, um, a redesign of our entire economic system um, and social protection system. And so that means um, having some kind of uh, way of continuous discourse, because as you said, if we are, if we are considering moving away, or I wouldn't say moving away, but in addition to GDP, looking at other measures of progress and valuing those measures mm -hmm. as equally important, it would mean going beyond the cadre of persons that are very much focused on the economic, on the accounting. Right and who may sometimes have the blinders on when it comes to social vulnerability and exclusion. So there are examples of this in the Caribbean, and I'm not saying that this example will necessarily translate to all countries in the Caribbean, but in Barbados and Grenada, there's the social partnership model, where before any critical major decisions are made on issues, it goes before beyond the social uh, to the social partnership, which includes all these sectors, um, um, sectors that I mentioned, the private sector, union, civil society, and so on. Um, and whatever way this social partnership looks, it doesn't have to look exactly like what is in Barbados or, or Grenada. It, it, it may also allow for opportunities for resource mobilization, this pressing issue of the tight fiscal space. So mm -hmm. in Barbados, for example, I know that the, pri the, the private sector really um, supported governments in terms of philanthropic effort, efforts um, right after the, the pandemic to ease the fiscal pressures faced by the government. Um, so I think this is another way to also look at this issue um, of social protection. Uh, and, and in fact, our entire um, social system, if you will, or econo and economic system is, is that we have to allow for voices of, of marginalized groups to be included mm -hmm. in the design or redesign or reimagining of our social protection programs. And it may provide opportunities for increased financing, increased partnerships with sector, you know, the, the private sector, you know, and, and, and other sectors. So I think that's what I would, um, what I would think would be consider in terms of a, a consultative me um, mechanism or platform for, for dialogue and for be, for inclusion of everyone um, to ensure that the design and management and operability of our social protection systems really is inclusive, you know, inclusive. Yeah. Bring, bringing more yes. people to the table when we exactly. look at the programs and yes. a diverse group of people making sure that it is not um, only those that have perhaps quicker access, but those really who have been marginalized and the most vulnerable to try and get an understanding of how we how we can address that through these, I, I like the term you use, the reimagined way of yes. looking at indicators. And you also touch on about which I which I fully agree that this this is not only this is not going to be the crisis that the only crisis we deal with. And certainly from small island states as well as other larger countries, we're seeing the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it is very worrying. The recent report that came out should be a red flag to all of us um, across the globe. 
on what is it that we're going to do to, to stimulate and to um, address it perhaps more aggressively than we did before. So I'll, I'll ask you if you could leave us then with one last message with it, given that context that we are going to have other crises and other forms of crises impacting our, our countries. What would be a, a lasting message on gender responsive social protection that you would like to leave us with? I think um, what, what I would say is that uh, if we are to close gap gaps, uh, inequalities, not only gender inequalities, but inequalities, intersecting inequalities with, you know, persons with disabilities, um, LGBTQI populations, other populations, we really need to look at removing the, the, the barriers that exist to empowerment and to equality and, you know, um, and applying a, a, a equitable, um, um uh way of doing business and and so i think that if there's a lasting message that i can leave uh it is that um the covid 19 pandemic has further wider gaps there's no dispute about that we have the evidence uh, and it is not over it is still here there are going to be other crises it's it's just what happens um and so what this has shown is the importance of having a comprehensive system that will close these gender gaps and other gaps, um, gaps in relation to young people, youth who are unemployed, um, as I said, persons with disabilities and so on. And so I think that would be my lasting um, message is that we have to, uh, closing gender gaps and social protection therefore will allow us to tread on that a more concerted path towards equality for all, sustainability for all, and security for all. So that would be um, one lasting thought I would leave. Thank you very much on that um, interesting perspective. I do hope that um, the audience uh, is going to be uh, engaged in some of the, the, the these conversations that quite frankly not should have been happening long before yeah. the pandemic, but the pandemic, as you rightfully said, certainly exposed a lot to be desired. And now is the time for us to try and get ahead before the before future crisis hits us. So thank you so much. I see you, I enjoyed this very much. And um, I'm glad I had the opportunity to meet you. Thank you.